We also have in the international markets, companies like Roche and Merck. So obviously very important healthcare companies. And so these are the kind of stocks where we're gaining exposure to in this portfolio. Welcome to Views from the Desk, a special edition of the BMO ETFs podcast. In these timely episodes, we provide the latest investment news and expert commentary on the markets, the economy, and investing. Brought to you by BMO Global Asset Management. Hello, and thanks for joining us today. As we enter earnings season, many investors are searching for an economic bellwether to reveal where the economy is headed. Cyclical sectors present a valuable opportunity for financial advisors to read the tea leaves and capture more growth when the market eventually recovers. To this end, Mark Race, Chris Heeks, and Chris McKinney break down quarterly results from Canadian and U.S. banks, adding their own insights, commentary, and ETF trade ideas. Before we hear from our experts, please consider subscribing to the BMO ETFs podcast on your preferred podcast player and sharing it with your friends and colleagues. Hello, I'm your host, Mark Reyes. I'm the head of product for BMO GAN Canada, covering mutual funds in ETFs. We're joined today again by Chris Heeks and Chris McKaney, both portfolio managers on our ETF desk, focusing on equity ETFs and derivative strategies, but of course, with knowledge and insight across our ETF shell. So thank you, Chris and Chris, for joining us today. Let's start with an update on markets in the economy, where, of course, equity markets seem to keep ticking ahead regardless of the disconnect to the economy. Maybe it's just a question of what people's lowest expectations are as earnings numbers continue to come in. We've discussed pairing defensive growth with technology exposure last week, but with the Canadian banks hitting earnings season, the numbers coming out over the last couple of days, including BMO this morning, we did see a big pop in markets yesterday. How would you pair factor exposure with the Canadian banks? And looking ahead, what's your outlook for the Canadian banks beyond this current earnings season? Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, I think yesterday's rally, so Tuesday, following the Memorial Day long weekend in the U.S., that was really one of the most positive rallies that we've had in quite quite a few weeks, actually, if you look underneath the hood. And, you know, I think it. It fit really well with some of the questions we were talking about were how to get access to you know, a little more growth exposure. You know, we really saw that cyclical rally yesterday. So to recap financials, both in Canada and the U.S. were up 5% yesterday. In the U.S., IT and healthcare took a little bit of a breather. What we did see was a seven standard deviation move in value. So if you look at kind of that financial performance, that's the best performance we've seen from that sector which we would classify financials as a cyclical sector, you know, that's the best performance in about a month. So you have to go back to kind of the darker days of that recovery off the bottom to find um, similar performance. So certainly that's a good sign when we talk about, you know, what we've been you know, recommending in terms of quality and low value, somewhat of a measured approach. We have to go back a few weeks and we, we were always saying, you know, dividends or cyclicals are going to potentially have their moments. And, you know, they certainly had their moment yesterday. In terms of the Canadian bank earnings, these are quarterly earnings as of April 30th. It's the first look at what's going on in the COVID world that we're in. Now, four of the six banks have reported 
as expected, the provisions for credit losses have gone up substantially. Um, if you look at our bank, BMO, our provision for credit losses went from $180 million last quarter to $1.1 billion. Royal Bank went from $400 million to $2.8 billion. So you're seeing provisions go up on the scale of seven to eight times of where they were in previous quarters. So, you know, that tells you that certainly the crisis is real in some extent. You know, the market reacted positively yesterday to Canadian banks. You know, I think BNF came in with lower, lower loan provisions. So the so Bank of Nova Scotia uh, kind of listed the sector, and we're, we're going to see what it does today. Look at overall portfolio positioning. We talked about, you know, how cyclical financials pair very well with quality and low vol. So I would say financials are they're a very attractive value proposition right now. You know, they've all obviously sold off quite a bit. They have not participated in the recovery to the same extent as the quality factor in particular. But again, with financials, I think you have, you know, whether it's Canada or U.S., you have large, you know, very large cap, well-capitalized businesses. Canada in particular, the Canadian banks are well-capitalized. You know, they're yielding close to 6% still. So in terms of an outlook, you know, the drawdown in earnings has been sharp this quarter. We expected that. You know, analysts expected the provisions for loans to go up substantially. But, you know, I want to look at the sector as more of a kind of a longer-term basis. But, you know, let's say our base case is two years where the bulk of the way through this recovery, whether that be through kind of the virus tapering off or we have better treatments or vaccines for the virus, very uncertain, but let's let's say that's our base case. We're going to recover out of two years, and if we get bank earnings kind of recover anywhere kind of near where they've been pre-crisis, it's going to be very constructive for Canadian banks. So ZEB right now, you know, you're looking at a kind of price around the twenty, the twenty-two dollar level, twenty-three dollars. You can easily get closer to that. You know, the all-time high is thirty. You know, I think I think a move back to the twenty-seven, twenty-eight range over two years is, is entirely feasible. And you know, between capital growth and dividends, that'd give you, you know, about fifteen to twenty percent uh, per year for two years. So, I think you know we're going to see some rough numbers this quarter. We'll see what how the banks react today because certainly, um, as I mentioned, Vivo and Royal came in with higher than expected loan losses. Still think this is a buying opportunity over the next couple of years. Um, if you can kind of set it and forget it type of approach. And, you know, the financials exposure is a way to get it put into a cyclical exposure, I think is a good place to go. So so I definitely like them over the next couple of years. All right. Thanks for that, Chris. Yeah, the equal weight Canadian bank ETFs, ADB is a, certainly a great way to play that trade. Now, let's take this idea a step further and, and look south of the border. How has the market treated the U.S. banks? And, you know, if you would contrast that with Canada, how would you invest with the choice between Canadian and the U.S. banks? Thanks. So I think the U.S. and Canadian banks are really getting more and more similar, even though as Canadians, we might, we might not think that. You know, a lot of the, the, the average Canadian bank exposure to the U.S. is probably around a 30% range. So they're much more similar than they are distinct. Now, the U.S. banks are, are known to be more aggressive lenders. They're less well capitalized than the Canadian banks. And as a result, we see a little more volatility. Well, actually, I shouldn't say little. I should say there's quite a bit more volatility with their return stream. But still, those same return drivers, I think, are in place. So, you know, I think we saw that yesterday with banks both sides of the border up 5%. They're much more alike than unlike. And I think all those arguments 
that applied to Canadian banks very much applied to U.S. banks. You know, we were a call, U.S. banks reported about a month ago, quarter to weeks ago. And, um, you know, it was the same thing there. Their provisions for loan losses increased by about, you know, three to fourfold, fivefold, not quite as much as BMO and Royal, but certainly the same directionally, the same trend. There again, there are, there are an oversold exposure, there's cyclical exposure. You know, with the S&P back nudging above 3,000, I think they're going to start catching up to the performance. We can't have just an IT rally and a healthcare rally with no other sectors participating. And I think, you know, as we get more constructive on a picture, and I certainly hope that's the case with the COVID, um, I think it will be the case over, over a period of time. You know, I think banks are a good, good, U.S. banks, they're going to be, you know, there's a constructive case for them as well. Um, I would still say as a Canadian investor, I'd lean more into the Canadian banks, just given that volatility picture. You know, like a little bit goes a long way with the U.S. banks. Keep in mind, you have some good exposure in an S&P 500 style fund. Uh, but, you know, like a 5% satellite position could, you you know, could potentially over the next couple of years be really productive. So, you know, I think the, the same kind of argument applies to them as well. And, you know, just to, just to shout out one of our ETFs, the ZWK, which is relatively new ETF, gives you that cover call overlay as well on top of the, the equal weight U.S. banks. And, you know, I really like that because, again, you can kind of harness that volatility picture of the U.S. banks and earn some extra income, you know, an extra 4% income very efficiently. So I think that's a great way to uh, to play that U.S. bank space. All right. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, so I guess it's much more of a question of conviction if, if you want the higher ball play to, to look south of the border. But if you want to stay within the defensive theme, even while you add a cyclical exposure, uh, Canadian banks would be the way to go. You're listening to Views from the Desk, a special edition of the BMO ETFs podcast. Before we return to this episode, we want to remind you to check out our new Deep Dive episodes, where we take you under the hood of BMO GAM's product suite and provide valuable talking points for your client conversations. Our most recent episode featured ZPay, also known as the BMO Premium Yield ETF, an innovative solution that pays investors to wait out a crisis. To learn more, check the episode notes below. Now, back to this episode. Let's move to another area and cover off some strategy as well, where for those struggling to find yield in this obviously stressed market where we're seeing bond yields come down, uh, we're seeing dividends come under pressure, we brought out a global covered call, the WG. How has it fared through the market correction and rebound? And can you break that between really the portfolio and the option overlay strategy and highlight where that overlay strategy sits right now, considering the still heightened volatility in the market. Chris McKinney, if you can help us with that one. Thanks. Sure. Thanks, Mark. And uh, we certainly are happy with ZWG. As, as you mentioned, one of our newer strategies uh, brought out this January. Um, we have been quite happy with how that has performed through the market drawdown and, and the subsequent rebound. Um, ZWG is our global high dividend covered call strategy. And we have similar strategies um, through Canadian equities, Canadian high dividends, uh, US and Europe. And this is the first one that has brought that all together. Um, so a global sort of geographic approach. Um, and really the first global covered call in Canada, I believe, um, covering everything all the way to Asia. And so what we've done with this fund, how we've built it, um, it's slightly different than those other high dividend strategies that I've talked about. 
we still want to build the portfolio with dividend growing companies, those with strong cash flows that are paying a growing dividend over time. We, we put a little less emphasis on the dividend yield and more about, um, again, the dividends that are growing. So how much are these companies growing their dividend over time? And we tilt a little more to the large caps. Since this is a global portfolio and we have a lot of stocks to choose from, we want to tilt towards those more liquid names to run that option overlay as efficiently as possible. But the other thing we've done with this portfolio is we've added a layer of ESG screening. And so we're only really selecting stocks that pass the ESG screens that we put it through. And so we really have an extra lens, so to speak, on the equities that we're choosing for this portfolio. And we've talked on these calls previously about how ESG through the market drawdown has actually performed a little bit better than um, if you just want to call it plain vanilla equities. The stocks that have that ESG layer, that ESG screening tend to have performed a little bit better on, on the drawdown. And, you know, we have sort of um, attributed that to the overall stronger governance that we find from these these companies uh, likely have stronger leadership, stronger management teams that would, would be able to work through this sort of economic slowdown that we're, that we're experiencing. And so that's one of the factors we think that has actually led this fund to do fairly well through the drawdown, you know, overall um, dividend strategies in general did not fare too well during this this uh, this drawdown, and there was a lot of talk about um, dividends coming under pressure. Would they be suspended? Would companies have to be forced to suspend their dividends? Would companies with cash flow problems cut their dividends? Um, and so, overall, dividend strategies have not performed too well during this drawdown. But ZWG, on the other hand, uh, with a focus again more on those stronger companies has actually done very, very well through this period. And so we're quite happy with how it's performed. You know, and the stocks that do end up in this portfolio, it is about 60% U.S. in terms of geographic breakdown. And that's actually a little bit underweight relative to, you know, the MSCI world. It's about 63 in, in the broader, uh, in the broad index. So it's actually a little bit underweight um, U.S. Uh, in this one, but still a healthy weighting that was 60%. You know, we have strong companies in there like Microsoft and Johnson and Johnson, companies that are actually doing very well through this slowdown. But we also have, um, you know, in the in the international markets, companies like Roche and Merck. So obviously, very important healthcare companies and Takeda Pharmaceuticals from Japan also. And so these are all companies that are actually playing an important role in helping the rebound element of this economic slowdown that we're in. So being able to carry us through that rebound. And so these are the kind of stocks we're, we're gaining exposure to in this portfolio. In terms of the option overlay strategy, um, we are adding, obviously, incremental yields uh, on top of the dividend that, that these companies pay. Um, the dividend, by the way, about 4.7% right now. So a nice, healthy dividend base there. Um, we've really seen volatility pick up globally, obviously, through March and April. It's still staying you know, somewhat high still in May, but a little bit lower than, than we saw in the previous two months. Um, but what we've done here, similar to our other cover cult strategies, is pushed out the moneyness of our options when we're writing options. We're allowing a lot more opportunity for growth. Um, as volatility expands, you're able to do that and still earn a decent yield. Um, you know, over the last two months, just looking at the numbers, we've earned um, in the neighborhood of 6 and 7% on an annualized basis um, over the previous two months in this fund just from selling options. Um, at the same time, as I mentioned, the, the opportunity for growth 
um, is as high as it's ever been. You know, a little over 10% is where we're writing our options right now. So 10% growth potential um, and then tacking on that additional yield as well on top of that dividend yield. So this fund, again, has performed very well um, through the slowdown and subsequent rebound, and we expect it to continue to do well as um, we still are able to, to, to clip those coupons, so to speak, in the option world and still allow for, for the growth potential going forward. All right. Thanks for that, Chris. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting addition to the lineup. And in today's volatile markets, a great way for, for advisors and investors to actually put that to good use in their portfolios. I want to ask a different question, uh, more on markets, where we saw an interesting report this week from National Bank on the heightened ETF trading volume through March. Can you look, look back at March and, and speak to the report, walk the listeners through it? I think it's an interesting way to look at things where you know there was a little negativity around the fact that the fixed income market became stressed and therefore the ETFs became stressed. But the key is that they actually continued to trade and people turned to them as a liquidity vehicle. And so maybe it's actually more of a positive story than, than people were first thinking about. You know, and just as a summary of it, the ETF dollar volume went from about two, under two billion per day uh, before the crisis to a peak of over five billion per day uh, in around mid March. So, Chris, can you can you walk us through your thoughts on that? Thank you. Yeah, for sure. So this is this is um, you know actually a theme with ETFs that they tend to trade more periods of turmoil. So it's you know it's a real nice facet of ETFs that. Um, they can offer investors tools to gain access or to or to remove access or remove exposure to a, to a portfolio. You know, I think looking back at that fixed income liquidity situation, now that we're kind of a month or two past it, I mean, I don't think anyone, you know, enjoys a market that's, you know, having that kind of challenging where literally, you know, energy bonds, even on companies like TransCanada, like relatively defensive pipelines, were essentially no bids. You know, that challenge really flowed through to the ETF. But one thing the ETF is always going to give you, and you can really see it in this report, is a source of liquidity, right? So, again, it was crazy market, no doubt about that. But ETFs always offered the liquidity. The, the market never never closed. We never closed our market. For short periods of time, there were um, trading halts, right, as, as, as market moved in the U.S. and triggered uh, circuit breakers. But, you know, for the most part, the market was always there and, and liquidity was available for clients. So, you know, this, this trend goes back a while. Started in 2008 is where we really first noticed it in the data, uh, particularly in the U.S., where U.S. ETF adoption has been a bit ahead of Canadian. But, you know, where whereas in the, you know, ETFs are trading about 20% of the market, you know, when that 2008 came, that 20% went up to about 40, I believe almost 45% of the market. So in challenging times, uh, market turmoil, uh, volumes in general increase across ETFs and non-ETFs, but but that increase on the ETF is much stronger than even that increase on the underlying uh, stocks. So, you know, it really shows you that, you know, ETFs are a tool that can be used for investors to really get on, you know, on an intraday basis at a certainty of price, you know, get into and out of exposures. And, you know, just as a reminder, you know, I certainly hope we're kind of through those kind of days of March and it'll be smoother sailing, but you know, as an ETF desk, as a PM desk and product and sales team, you know, we're here to help with that liquidity. So for anyone who's 
in high liquidity challenge, you know, reach out to your ETF um, wholesaler or someone in the organization we can help manage that. We're definitely here to help you on that. Uh, but but yeah, definitely a good stat that that the volume was as strong as it was, and um, you know, I think it speaks speaks very well on the ETF industry as well overall. Yeah, thanks, Chris. I, I think it's quite dramatic when you see it moving from sub two billion to over five billion a day. Clear demonstration of the benefits of liquidity of ETFs. Just want to ask one more quick one before we go to the lines. Can I get an update on gold as we continue to see investors pile into the trade, but returns have certainly slowed down over the back half of the month. So your views on on gold moving forward, but as well contrasting between something like RZGD, which uses uh, or invests in the equities of, of gold miners, versus something like GLD, which, of course, is the direct commodity exposure. Thanks. Sure. And as you say, Mark, um, we, we have seen returns from gold, you know, gold, the metal, somewhat slow down in, in recent days. And, and part of that has to do with you know, the rally we've seen in equity markets as the economy starts to reopen. There's a little bit more you know, risk off attitude in equity markets that we've seen with expectations that there will be a significant rebound. But when you are looking at gold as an investment and whether, you know, whether that's gold miners or, or the gold price, you know, the, the driver always is the gold price. And if you take a look at gold right now, the, the sort of secular backdrop is very, very positive. We see significant um, monetary expansion right now. And in fact, um, this is going to be an unprecedented level on a global, on a global scale of you know, QE and, and other monetary stimulus measures that we've never seen before. And, you know, we go back to 2008, 2009, when you could have said the same thing at that time, you know, uh, really the monetary expansion we saw at that time was unprecedented. And, you know, that, that really works to debase currencies over time and is supportive of gold as really that store of value, which is what a currency is supposed to be. So that store of value element that gold brings um, particularly through that 08 to 2011 period when QE was really ramping up for the first time, um, you know, we saw the gold price double from, uh, you know, about $900 an ounce to almost $1,900 an ounce um, through those couple of years, um, 2009 to 2011, as this QE um, phased into the global economy. Fast forward to today and, and, the levels of QE that we've heard announced from from central banks around the world, the U.S. and and elsewhere, is really putting the, the levels that we saw back then, you know, in 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 the shadows. And you know, it's probably eight trillion dollars is the number I've seen um, for you know monetary expansion that's only been announced, um, or you know, some expect it to be a little bit more uh, in terms of what's ultimately going to be needed and what ultimately central banks will do. And so if you take a look at gold and put it in a similar backdrop to what we saw in 08, 09, and, and through 2011, you know, gold ended 2019 at around $1,500 an ounce, let's call it. And if you think it has the potential to double based on this monetary stimulus that we're seeing, you know, that would take it up to potentially $3,000. And I have seen targets of, of some uh, analysts saying it, it, it is expected to go up potentially up to $3,000 an ounce seeing probably more broadly targets of $2,000 plus, you know, low $2,000. And so even though we've seen a strong rally in gold through 2019 and the first part of 2020, 
you know, currently sitting at about $1,700 an ounce, there's still a lot of upside uh, potential uh, as we move forward through the next two years. From there, you decide, you know, do I want exposure to that metal directly through GLD or a similar ETF that, that holds physical gold for every unit that, that is uh, outstanding? Um, you'll, you'll benefit in that rise in value should it go up to 2000 or $3,000. Uh, you'll benefit directly in that. Um, the other consideration is um, investing in gold miners. So the equities in ZGD, for example, as you said, Mark, the equities that are mine, the stocks that are mining this gold and bringing it out of the ground and selling it. The consideration you would make there is that what you're getting or what you're hoping for is an operating leverage to the price of gold. And so, you know, obviously these companies have that leverage. They have some element of debt. And so they're able to leverage the company and are providing a leveraged play on gold, essentially. Um, you know, the, the, the downside risk is that there are operational risks to that. You know, some companies can execute better than others. Some have more debt than others, and so you won't get a uniform um, uh, lift from all gold miners. But what you do expect is if gold goes up significantly, you can expect uh, gold stocks to potentially go up even more than that. Um, and that was certainly the case in that 09 to 2011 period. If gold almost doubled, you know, some stocks went from uh, uh, up about 150% or, or more um, rather than just 100% we saw in, in the gold price. And so, you know, a lot of uh, investors would prefer to invest in those equities. It's a bit more straightforward. It's a bit more, re um, you know, regular approach to investing is buying stocks or companies and hoping that those companies execute over time. Um, you know, the other thing that ZGD offers, those senior gold miners, not just leverage to the gold price itself, but also that opportunistic element, the opportunity to as some of the more lesser well-known sort of gold companies try to work through this period, a lot of those um, junior or smaller cap companies have a lot of leverage, a lot of debt on the books. Some of those companies might not be able to make it out the other side here, depending on uh, demand for gold, but also financing and things like that. Are they able to continue to get their financing? So there's a bit of opportunity for some of these senior companies in ZGD to be able to scoop up some of these smaller companies should they start to run into trouble and sort of buy these mines on a discount, so to speak. So that's the other opportunity that ZGD offers uh, when you're looking at different ways to invest in gold. Right. Thanks for that, Chris. Uh, at this point, I'd like to go to the line and see if there's any questions. Hi, guys. This is uh, Saad Rana here. Thanks for all the uh, great information. I was just looking to see if you could share some thoughts on uh, currency hedging at this point. For sure. Um, Jumping on that one. Uh, there's, you know, we saw a lot of interest uh, with currency hedging, you know, particularly above $1.40. I think it's Thinks with what we were talking about, you know, the, this recovery in cyclicals now that we're seeing the U.S. dollar uh, weaken again. So, you know, this market recovery taking hold, the U.S. dollars weaken. So, I would say a lot of advisors uh, expressed a lot of interest to hedge uh, when the U.S. dollar was 140 to 145. You know, I think that long-term neutral range for the CAD is around a dollar 30. So we're still above that, but you know the, the rate is starting to come off now. So it's about a dollar thirty-seven. I think it's still there's a little bit of a hedging bias, but it's it's becoming less attractive perhaps than it was in March or early April. 
but you know, still, still something to consider. I mean, I do, we, we do always like having some U.S. dollars unhedged in the portfolio as that tends to give you, you know, a diversifying effect against your equities. You know, as equities sell off, the U.S. dollar tends to rally. You know, we saw that in March. So that, that worked out very well in March. And then, then again, you know, with a little hedging bias within that structure, you know, makes a little sense as well. So I think you can still be hedging a little bit. Um, I do think you still want some U.S. dollar exposure. And we'll see what happens from here. I think if the market continues to rally and recover from from this COVID over time, you know, we were trading more in that 132 range on the U.S. dollar. And that's still about 4% kind of below where we are right now. So perhaps argues for incremental hedging on a strategic basis. Perfect. Thank you. Good morning, guys. Uh, John Nargozi here. Thanks for taking my question. I've been looking at ZCH China uh, for a little while now. Can you give me some insights on this ETF? Thanks. Yeah, I can take a look at that one here for you. And, you know, ZCH obviously providing broad exposure to, to China and Chinese equities. You know, a lot that has um, done well in the U.S. market, you know, we're, we're thinking about the tech exposure that's becoming an increasingly larger portion of the S&P 500. A lot of those type of companies can be found in China as well. And I'm thinking about things like Alibaba that everyone might know or JD.com. A lot of companies that, you know, increasingly will be uh, reaching investors or, or, or customers through digital channels. Um, you know, in a lot of respects, that was already accelerated in China relative to Western nations. But obviously, the, the, the lockdown and, and slowdown in, in economies is, is going to accelerate that. Um, and so the other element China has when you're looking at potential rebound is that obviously they they went through this process a little bit sooner than, than everyone else, um, as that's where the virus originated. Um, the first lockdowns were, were in China, and so they were the first to sort of lift those lockdowns and then come out the other side. So there's a thought that China could potentially lead the world uh, in terms of economic expansion going forward for the for the foreseeable future anyway, again, just because they're about a quarter, calendar quarter ahead of, of the rest of the world at least uh, in terms of where their expansion is going to start beginning. Uh, but again, also a lot of the same drivers that, that investors like in the U.S., a lot of world-leading companies really can be found in China as well and through the ZTH. Thank you. So with that, I'd like to thank everyone for joining us today. We really appreciate your time and, of course, your questions. And thanks to both Chris McKinney and Chris Heeks for your insights, uh, your views on, on markets and asset classes, and trade ideas within the ETF shelf. Much appreciated. So with that, I'd like to thank everyone once again. Be well, be safe, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you to Mark Race, Chris McKinney, and Chris Heeks for joining us on the BMO ETFs podcast. Today we heard about a potential recovery in oversold sectors of the market, how to access those exposures through ETFs, and what challenges your peers are facing in the current environment. For more information about the ETFs discussed in this podcast, please contact your regional BMO ETF specialist. The viewpoints expressed by the portfolio manager represent their assessment of the markets at the time of publication. Those views are subject to change without notice at any time without any kind of notice. The information contained herein is not and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice to any party. 
Investment should be evaluated relative to the individual's investment objectives, and professional advice should be obtained with respect to any circumstance. Any statements that necessarily depend on future events may be a forward-looking statement. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of performance. Views from the Desk has been brought to you by BMO Global Asset Management.